Hey everyone, my name is J.P. Debregosian. I'm an essayist, Lambda Literary Fellow, founder of the Queer Armenian Library, and I want to let you know that we are pressing the pause button on our 7 Minutes in Book Heaven podcast. We're devoting a lot of focus on our new format for this queer book, Save My Life, and so for right now, we are pausing production of new episodes of 7 Minutes in Book Heaven. We recorded this last episode a few months ago, and we're releasing it today as it coincides with our guest book release, which is today. So enjoy my conversation with Diana Hunter. I'm going to drop you right into that convo I had with her. And just so you know, a new episode of this queer book, Save My Life, arrives next Tuesday. Hello, Diana. Hello, JP. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So how our podcast works, I have seven questions for Diana, and we're going to spend approximately the next seven minutes in this virtual studio talking about clouded waters, while also getting to know more about the amazing writer who is Diana Hunter. So Diana, are you ready? I am as ready as I'm ever going to be, (laughs) (laughs) which means yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, the timer is set, and here we go. Question number one. Please describe Clouded Waters as if you're sharing it with your celebrity crush and telling us who that special person is, of course. Well, my first impulse is to say that I gave up the idea of having celebrity crushes maybe 50 years ago, but (laughs) then I think, right, show yourself to be some sardonic old curmudgeon. So, Celine Siama, let's sit down for coffee, watch the ships come in on Lake Superior, and talk about Clouded Waters. It's a novel. It's a mashup of whodunit, sapphic romance, dispatches from the Anthropocene, and gumshoe investigative reporting set in a fictional town on what we now call the Masabi Iron Range in what we now call Minnesota. The main character, S.B. Ellingson, publishes a struggling fourth-generation newspaper with help from her eccentrically dressing best friend and researcher. S.B. is the widow of a wife. She's the mother of two children who have grown and left home. She's dealing with loneliness, grief, and family stress. And just as she meets a new woman in town, she finds herself in the middle of a clash between supporters of a proposed new copper nickel mine and people who want to protect the water. Her mother-in-law leads a group of Anishinaabe Ojibwe water protector grandmothers, and SB commits to finding and reporting the truth. When she learns that a local water scientist has gone missing, she investigates and unearths a corrupt conspiracy tied to an international plutocrat. You know, you're saying that this is fiction, but it sounds like, you know, true crime. (laughs) Like this is something that is actually happening right now. (laughs) It's something like things that are actually happening right now, because there actually are three mining companies trying to begin to uh, mine for copper and and nickel in Minnesota, in northern Minnesota. And uh, in some ways, the truth of watching, following the things that they propose and the uh, objections that are raised and the struggle that goes on among the various stakeholders in this struggle of theirs to get uh, copper and nickel to the surface. And on the other side, the struggle to protect the water, because the, the problem is that these minerals are in sulfide rock. When exposed to water, and this is a very cold, a wet and cold climate, but it has a tendency to then chemically interact and release toxic metals. It's been going on about 50 years and has been quite intense in the last 10 or so. 
And I've uh, I found as a reader trying to follow the issues that I really got lost at just a few paragraphs into an article every time I tried to sit down and understand it. Three different mining companies, three different methods, three different places. There's just a lot to keep up with. So then the, when the pandemic came along, I, uh, during the shutdown, began to write this book. Well, this, as someone who also lives in Minnesota, is a very necessary book. So congratulations on publishing it. Thank you very much. I hope people uh, read it and that it sparks a lot of conversation. Absolutely. I hope so, too. I really do. Okay, well, question number two. What is a sentence from a novel, essay, poem, or other book that every time you read it, it gives you all the feels? Well... I think I might have some sort of idiosyncratic understanding of what it is to get the feels. (laughs) For me, a lot of times it's sparked by public events. (laughs) So uh, currently, I'm loving a line from a long prose poem in a collection by a Duluth writer, Julie Gard. The book is I Think I Know You, and the poem is called The Election Season. And what you need to know is the poet has been chronicling deftly, seriously, comically, the events that she experienced leading up to the 2020 election. So here's the line. Who would I be in a world without panic, in a world not constantly ending? Wow. I don't know who I'd be. Do you, JP? (laughs) No. I mean, wow, that's really got me thinking about how we define ourselves. Yeah, and how we visualize possibilities. I mean... I think that's always the impulse behind idealism is that I wish to live in a world without panic, without fear, without suffering. But there's so much confusion between here and there and all these reasons we're suffering, our own actions, the Anthropocene extinction, the accountability those of us who descend from the settler colonizers feel and Mm -hmm. what we owe to the indigenous people and the list goes on and on. I am definitely going to put a link to that in the show notes, because I think everyone needs to read that. Thank you for sharing it. Okay, question number three. What do you feel is the best sentence you've ever written? Well, as a prose writer, I'm not much for figurative language. I'm kind of, I'm prosaic. <laughs> I try to layer one active, useful sentence after another. And I don't know, I just guess I feel some discomfort over picking my, I will do this, of course, but uh, my favorite sentence, because I was of such a mixed mind about picking such things. In some ways, you know, there there are children, and you kind of have to be fair and not pick favorites. And in another <laughs> way, whenever I consciously think I'm writing a great sentence, then that's usually time to take a hard look at it because it, maybe it's a little too precious or reaching a little too far. But anyway, here's the sentence I'm going to pick. My main character, SB, this isn't it, but it's coming. My main character, SB, gets morose at times. She's 53 years old, grieving the death of her wife five years earlier. Sometimes she keeps herself as flat as possible to slide below the onslaught of daily stress. There's a new woman in town who might be able to break through her defenses, but SB's busyness and avoidance have protected her so far, and she's sticking with the strategy. The sentence comes when she's talking to herself in bed alone at night. And she thinks, in a universe where stars eat other stars and whole solar systems slide into black holes, what chance did love have? Oh, and you got me there. I love cosmic metaphors. (laughs) (laughs) Well, astrophysics, you just can't 
help but have your mind blown when you start thinking about it and, uh, you know, how we fit within the picture, the big picture of the universe. Right. That's what I love about it is that it, it, it centers me, which is why I so love those, those analogies and metaphors. Yeah. It puts things in perspective. But I think that's in a centering way as well. Important to have that knowledge. Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, question number four. What's the best romantic scene you've ever read? Okay. Well, this this was a tough choice. I actually went went scurrying back to a bunch of my various lesbian novels and poetry collections, and I really considered going with the final scene between Therese and Carol in The Price of Salt, which was, you know, um, many of our listeners probably know Patricia Highsmith's uh, novel that had originally been published as The Price of Salt. And it's that the the last scene is a coming back together scene. And I think it speaks even more eloquently of love than the preceding earlier in the book sex scene. But the scene was so memorable on film. And uh, it's I think it's going to take a long time before anybody can really read the original version in anything like a fresh light, though it's beautifully written in prose that essentially gives the stage directions for the film version that we saw in Carol. Uh, but I'm going with Audre Lord from her poem, Woman. I dream of a place between your breasts to build my house like a haven where I plant crops in your body, an endless harvest, where the commonest rock is moonstone and ebony opal, giving milk to all of my hungers, and your night comes down upon me like a nurturing rain. I mean, how can you go wrong with Audrey Lord? I mean, it's just phenomenal what she's able right? to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she she was an amazing person. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And a question now, number five, which I'm going to be really interested to hear your answer to. What are your favorite smells to write about? I seem to return to barns all the time, uh, having been a farmer at one time in my life. So I one of my favorite smells is a barn smelling like summer grass processed through a horse or a cow, and dark coffee. Oh, some Just folks... before I slosh it across my tongue and let it slide slowly down my throat. <laughs> oh, that's so evocative. That is so evocative. Some folks won't believe that my dad's family is actually, uh, they're farmers, and I grew up partially on a farm, and so I know exactly what both of those smells are, and they are, they are really good. Okay. Well, question number six. What is the worst writing advice you've ever got? Okay. It came in a rejection letter from a feminist periodical. I think this might be too long for an essay? Question mark. Which when I shared with Carol Bly, who was one of my writing mentors at the time, she said, so much for Montaigne. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You put me at ease quite a bit with that comment. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Man. Uh, the stuff that we get from authors about their worst writing advice, it's wild. It is wild, the things that we're told. Okay, well, question number seven. And our last question, promote yourself. How do we follow you on social or your website and order your book? Okay, well... I don't do social, but people can email me through the contact link on my website. 
They can also see my upcoming readings, book signings, and appearances there as soon as I get them on. And uh, they can order my book through links from there, or they could do, uh, they can order, pre-order Clouded Waters anytime on Amazon or at a number of the independent booksellers uh, in Minnesota and other online booksellers. Wonderful. Well, that's all the time that we have today. Thank you so much, Diana. Okay, thank you, JP. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. You can purchase Diana's book in our bookstore. It is on sale. Visit bookshop.org slash shop slash This Queer Book. Links in the show notes and on our website. A new episode of This Queer Book, Save My Life, drops next week. Our podcasts are executive produced by Jim Pounds. Our associate producers are Archie Arnold, Natalie Cruz, Jonathan Freed, Paul Kafer, Nicole Olilla, Joe Perrazzo, Bill Shea, and Sean Smith. Our Patreon subscribers are Stephen D., Stephen Flam, Thomas Mickna, and Gary Nygaard. We're on Facebook, and you can find us on Instagram. We're at This Queer Book. As always, you can connect with us through our website, thisqueerbook.com. And until next week, see you queers and allies in the bookstores. <laughs>